Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwurzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Sean Hare, president and CEO of Trinity Investments. This was a conversation I was super pumped about. Sean raised this massive GP fund during COVID, really at the start of COVID, and went out and made some incredible hospitality investments. We discussed what is a GP fund, how he raised a GP fund, what the strategy is, why a GP fund is great for investors. We also talked about where he's deploying capital today, how he's getting into some of these large-scale resorts, and how Trinity develops alpha where other investors can't and what he thinks about hospitality investing and why it is such an important asset class. Please enjoy my conversation today with Sean Hare. It's a fun one and I know you're going to love it. It's amazing to have you on the podcast. You are actually someone that I've secretly, I think, been admiring and looking at. And I was like, wow, like that is kind of how we want to shape Dovehill and what I want to do. Now I'm excited to hear about how you did it. But I think a cool place to start would be for you to tell me, us, how a guy from Botswana found his way to Hawaii. <laughs> and then like maybe we'll talk about how you're coming to Florida now too. Yeah. So as, as I found out when I got to Hawaii, that Hawaii is the antipodal point to Botswana. So I literally couldn't have gone further on this globe. <laughs> as I told my parents at the time, if I took a step in either direction, I'd be closer to Botswana. But no, I uh, I know you had Warren DeHaan on here a few weeks or a couple of months ago. Warren and I met on the plane leaving South Africa in February of 92 on our way to hotel school in Switzerland. And when we graduated from hotel school in Switzerland, which was more of an associate's degree or diploma, the idea was to continue studying. I applied to Cornell. They laughed at my high school grades and I went to UNLV for a semester and then reapplied and uh, graduated from Cornell. So I've only had two jobs when I graduated from Cornell. I went to work for HVS International. And then two years later, I got a call from a headhunter saying that Chuck Feeney had started a real estate group out of Hawaii and they were buying luxury hotels. Now, at Cornell, Chuck Feeney is a huge name, the founder of Duty Free Shoppers, a huge donor. And so I ran over to the interview. They just bought the Mark Hotel in New York. And I walked in and it wasn't Chuck Feeney, it was Chuck Sweeney and uh, George Ruff and John Miho. But I fell in love with the three guys. They adopted me, if you will. I was 25 at the time. And uh, 25 years later, I'm still at the company. They've since retired, but it's been a terrific run. Wow. Okay. So what is it about these Swiss hospitality schools that seem to attract great people, but then 
form this bond with hoteliers that are now going out and doing investments and not just operations? Well, I think what, and I'd say the same for Warren, what we found was, you know, growing up in Africa during apartheid and sort of being closed off from the rest of the world, you know, suddenly landing in Switzerland in the middle of Europe, we were 19 years old. And it was like, wow. I mean, when my parents suggested hotel school, I didn't hear hotel school. I heard Switzerland, and that's how I ended up there. But, you know, we learned uh, the industry literally from the bottom up. Our first internship that we had was in Zurich for six months. So we'd study six months, work six months, and do that for three years. We were working at the Borolac, which is one of Europe's great hotels. And my job was as the busboy. And we weren't allowed to interact with guests, but literally, summertime running in the tunnel underground from the kitchen to the terrace restaurant and back and forth. But you really got to experience the inner working of a hotel. And I immediately knew that not only did I love the hotel industry, but I loved the higher end of the hotel industry. But the sad part of the hotel industry, and it's something that we all have to fix over time, is the pay scales just aren't commensurate with the amount of work or the hours that people are working. And I think we're seeing that coming out of COVID with the difficulty in, in, in meeting staffing levels. So I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to be on the ownership side or the advisory side of, of the industry, still attached to it, but coming at it from a different angle. And I'd heard of Cornell. I didn't know that Cornell had other colleges besides the hotel schools. When I arrived there, that was a big shock. I'd never <laughs> been to the States. But the, the hotel school really taught us the, the business skills. And you can go into any industry. Warren and I have actually started a, um, an endowment at Cornell because when we were there, we didn't have parents who were in the industry. So when an internship time came at Cornell, we ended up working at the Statler Hotel on campus, driving the bus to and from the airport and working as bellhops. So what we're trying to do is, and we're doing the inaugural trip this September, is we're bringing hotel school graduates from all different aspects of hospitality real estate. So you've got lenders, investors, family offices, consultants, brokers across the, the gamut to help educate the students as to what hospitality real estate really encompasses, all the way from legal to lending to and everything in between. So that's something fun that we're doing, and and I sort of learned the the long and hard way about all the different aspects of the industry that you can go into. So as you're investing in luxury hotels and making that part of your key strategy now, what are some of the things that you learned at that time that's influencing some of your investment decisions? So I think even going back to the Borolac and learning from then, when you get into these more destination-type hotels that, I mean, that's a luxury hotel. We sort of stick in the upscale, upper upscale to luxury. You attract mu multiple market segments. And that really made an impression on me, what was that, like 31 years ago. And so I thought that if you're going to invest in hotels, rather have multiple feeders to generate business as, as opposed to be reliant on just one segment of the market because as we know things do change i didn't know that at the time thankfully you know we've learned it over, over along the way but it was really these destination hotels have multiple segments you can you can lean on multiple drivers as one fades away you can ramp up with others and that sort of got instilled in me in a very young age 
So given your experience and seeing how hotels work from the inside and what the pay gaps are and what the pay scales are, Europe kind of is this fantasy land where you always, it seems like there's just career amazing hotel people that this is their desire to work in a hotel and work in the service industry. It's really hard to find that in the US, particularly at the lower end of the hotels, the economy. Do you think that technology is going to start coming into those hotels and maybe all of the talent is going to shift to luxury and upper up scale? Or where do you think this labor in the US shakes out? Well, I think the two fundamental differences that I see between the US and Europe in general is that Europe has much more of a vocation angle, if you will. In the US, I feel like there's too much emphasis on four-year college degrees. I mean, not everybody's supposed to go to college and earn a four-year degree. A lot of people graduate with a lot of debt that never gets paid off. I'm the first person in my family who went to college. My dad trained in Ireland as a finished carpenter. And so I grew up around artisans and 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 people with uh, who'd gone through apprenticeships and so forth. So I think in Europe, there's much more of that where you choose a profession. It doesn't have to be a college degree based profession, and you go in and become a true expert at that. Whether you're a waiter or whether you're a carpenter or a plumber or a fitter and turner, you know, there's much more of that in Europe. To answer your second question about where do I see technology going in the US, I think it depends at which end of the spectrum you're in. So with select service, for sure, you know, you'll get to a point where if you don't want to, you won't interact with a human being during your entire stay, right? With remote yep. access, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I find on the upscale and luxury end of the spectrum, people are buying an experience. And we often joke that we saw this revenge leisure traveler coming out in the summer of 21. And that's anecdotally was people got tired of shopping on Amazon and they decided to shop for experiences instead and, and hotels and resorts sort of fell into that. So we will use technology. I think we'll see a lot more of it at every step of the chain scale. But when you're buying an experience, you want more of that you know, one-on-one interaction with, with other people in the service industry. So when you transitioned from HVS to Trinity, did you have any investment training? Because you knew how to work in a hotel, so you could understand how everything works from the operations side. But how did you learn how to be an investor? Well, at HVS, the benefit that they gave us, and I give you know huge kudos to Steve Rushmore and, and uh, ALJ and Karen Rubin, because straight out of school, they just threw us in the deep end. And, and I often tell people who are graduating, no matter what the industry, if you go into consulting or brokerage to start with, the benefit you have is that you see a huge swath of the industry. Like we were traveling all the time. We were in different markets doing appraisals and 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 and, and consulting assignments, et cetera. We got to meet a lot of people. You know, we had our internal valuation models that we were working. But, you know, when you in that job, I sort of learned everything down to the EBITDA or the NOI line. When you get onto the ownership side, as you know, you get on you, you sort of like NOI is where the work starts and you're trying to figure out depreciation and 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 financing and and all of that other stuff to make the investments work. Again, when I joined Trinity, I honestly knew nothing. I I'm still learning all the time every day. But thankfully I had these three older mentors who started the firm who who again threw me in the deep end and I started learning quickly with them. 
What did you learn from them that made you a good investor? It's relationships. They were huge on relationships. When I joined them, they were buying distressed debt from Japanese banks on real estate in Hawaii and going through deed and lose. And those were relationships that they'd built up over their 40-year careers. Those same relationships then invited us to Japan to continue doing the same thing. So unless you've got relationships and you've got a robust reputation, it's very hard to be an investor. People do business with people they like at the end of the day. So relationships to me are the cornerstone of, of, of being an investor. So in the beginning stages, they were doing deals in Hawaii and Japan. It's kind of close. At some point, did they just like max out of luxury Hawaii hotels and other investments and start looking towards the mainland? Well, it was interesting. As I joined them, they had bought a controlling stake in a company called Raphael Hotels. So George Raphael, along with Adrian Zecker, were co-founders of Regent Hotels. Bob Burns was yep. the, third, the third partner. George and Adrian left. Adrian obviously started Amman. George started Raphael Hotels. So we'd bought that. It was the Mark in New York, New, New York, Turnberry Isle here, here yep. in Florida, Elba Beach in Bermuda, the Hotel de Rhone in Geneva, Hotel Raphael in Munich, which is now the, the Mandarin. And I was the asset manager. And it was just really, it, it, it was wild sort of having, on the one hand, those luxury hotels to asset manage in exotic locations. And on the other hand, just being a runt analyst underwriting, buying shopping malls in Tokyo. And I think I realized pretty quickly then, if you're going to invest in real estate, I mean, I had more of an affinity towards hotel real estate than I did to generic real estate uh, asset classes. Well, I guess I understand that because you went to hotel school and you had this whole hotel background, but everyone always says that hotel real estate is the hardest because it's this operating business and it's the real estate business. Despite all that, why do you still like investing in hotels? And even at that age, why did you like doing it then? Hotels to me were just a sexier asset class. I mean, I understood them. They're, it's not just real estate. It's a living and breathing operating business and machine. And going through COVID and then coming out and, and being in a high inflation environment, you realize we have an asset class that leases up every night. So if you need to reprice on a nightly basis, you can and stay ahead of inflation. You know, you can continue to stay ahead of the wage inflation too. You know, there are there are times in the market where that hurts you and you're better off having a fixed term lease as you do in office or, or other asset classes. But I think having with the Switzerland experience and sort of learning the business from the bottom up, that's just where my passion has always been. So when you were in Hawaii, you're investing in Hawaii hotels, some stuff in Japan. Did you ever think or get nervous that that demand source was just solely leisure and that you wanted to start looking to diversify into other areas? Or was it so robust that you felt that those hotels could just withstand anything in that location? I think living through 9-11 in Hawaii, you know, the, the, especially Oahu, Honolulu and Waikiki was so reliant on the Japanese traveler. I mean, they just stopped coming. And we were trying to figure out they, why they were not coming back. And it was really cultural. They viewed the US as a country in mourning, and it wasn't appropriate to be vacationing in a country that was in mourning, which was really unique. Yeah. But, you know, Hawaii does, in addition to leisure, does have its share of group and 
you know, incentive travel and 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 so forth. But it is a market that's heavily reliant on on tourism. And so we we had the worst of it at the start of COVID, where the restrictions on getting into Hawaii with quarantining, et cetera, like a two week quarantine, decimated the business. But then it all came roaring back. We are seeing a little bit of softness now because I think everybody in that price category is in Europe this summer. But you know, Hawaii is traditionally a mid eighty percent occupancy market. Did you ever feel like being in Hawaii puts you out of the flow? Because there's not a lot of hotel real estate investment firms at your size and scale then or now in Hawaii. Did you ever feel kind of like left out or far away? No, because when you live in a place like Hawaii, you know, people ask, why do you, why, why do you rob a bank? It's all, well, that's where the money is, right? So even though I've been living in Hawaii this time around for the last 13 years, I'm in New York at least twice a month. I'm on the West Coast a lot. You're traveling. So it's longer distances, but you get out there and you travel. So I remain very connected to, you know, the other markets, et cetera. It does. And, and then fortunately, there are some great investors in Hawaii who are close friends of mine, like, you know, BJ Kobayashi from the Kobayashi Group. He owns hotels. He does a lot of development. Jay Scheidler, David Hamamoto from, you know, yep. ex of North Stars from Hawaii. So, and the thing that changed from when I first lived in Hawaii in 98, where there was like nobody around, because we were tracking the Asian economy more than we were the US mainland. So there was a, it was, you know, pretty depressed at the time. Now you've got a lot of people sort of in my age group who are retired and can choose to live anywhere. They choose to live in Hawaii for the weather and the schools, et cetera. So there's a great group of people that you, know, you can have terrific conversations with, interact with, and, and share ideas. What are some of the biggest trends or changes in our industry that you're really focusing on now that you think will pay dividends over the next 10 years? The biggest change that I've seen coming out of COVID is this work from home phenomenon. So if people in general are working from home Mondays and or Fridays, that's a dramatic change. When you look at the types of hotels that we invest in, you know, Sunday nights and Thursday nights were your softest nights by far. Yeah. They're not our strongest nights now, but they're solid nights now. And so what we're seeing is every weekend is now a three-day weekend. Every three-day weekend, suddenly a four-day weekend. There's more of this hot desk concept within offices, and they've been sort of downscaling their footprint, which is forcing companies to hold more off-sites in hotels, like the ones we invest in, to bring their people together. But also then that behooves us to be thinking ahead as to, as we renovate these hotels, what should we be you know, including in the plan that makes them more user-friendly for the guests, such as when you look at the basic guest room, making the workspaces more adaptable. You know, we put L-shaped sofas in, you know, with adjustable height coffee tables that you could also work from or do take Zoom or Teams calls from, etc. We look at these large resorts and how do you, if you're there as a leisure guest and everybody else is a name badge on and you're not invited to that party, where do you go hang out? So yep. creating like, you know, clubs that you can pay up into. We've become very big on the cabana program. We've got these beautiful cabanas that we get designed and, and built in Asia. Some people in, in a lot of these resorts are paying more for their cabanas than they are for their guest rooms. So it's all of those. And then obviously health and wellness is a huge part of it today. 
you know, be back in the day, you know, a gym would sort of be tucked in the basement with no natural light. Now, you need to have a great view from the gym and, you know, indoor, outdoor work areas. And we, so we spend a lot of time thinking about those components as, as we renovate. But we've had the benefit of, of having just rolled off about a half a billion dollars worth of renovation work across our portfolio. And we'll be embarking on a similar amount on the assets we've recently purchased. So we're constantly trying to assess those trends. All right, you said a lot there. I want to go back to a couple <laughs> of it, okay? But the first thing is these like Asian cabanas that are yeah. coming in. A, I paid for those cabanas. You know, the breakers here has cabanas and I think they're like $2,500 for the day, which is most of their, more expensive than most of their rooms. Yeah. Why is that so much a part of your strategy in some of these big resorts and what opportunities are other missing or other people missing that you've now found? Well, what we're seeing as well, and we'll talk on the leisure side for a second, a lot of it is multi-generational travel. So the grandparents, the parents, the grandkids, grandparents, kids, their kids, you know, sometimes there's three or four yeah, yeah. generations. And, you know, they want to be able to gather together, you know, multiple times during the day. So they pay up for the lounge because there's nothing worse than getting your face ripped off and paying $100 for breakfast when your kid only had a box of cereal, right? Right. So if you pay up into the lounge, you get breakfast included, you get snack at lunchtime, you get happy hour and, and, and hors d'oeuvres in the evening. It's the same with these cabanas. It's Everybody's off doing their thing during the day, but either the parents or the grandparents can be in the cabana. People sort of keep coming back, meeting up, going out. If you've got little kids, they're sheltered from the sun. And it's proximate. So you've got, like, we try and create adult zones, try and create family zones, try and create little kids zones where the water is very shallow. And uh, it's just being cognizant of how these families travel today because with this transfer of wealth that's going on, one of the great things that people are doing is sharing their wealth while they're alive and taking people on trips, especially after they were cooped up at home for 18 months, 24 months during COVID. No doubt. So how are you executing $500 million worth of renovation projects, which are way harder than development projects? How, yeah. how do you do that? Because you do it all yourself, I think, right? Yeah. So the way we've positioned ourselves is that we're the operating partner to large private equity firms. And we can talk later about how we've raised those funds. But so when we partner with Oak Tree or Partners Group or Sataris, we say, look, the onus is on us, Trinity to have the in-house expertise. So we have 35 professionals today, we'll be 40 pretty soon, and we handle everything in-house from not only the acquisitions to the asset management, the project management, all of the reporting, the financial reporting, et cetera, all of that is handled in-house. And so on the project management side, we have Craig Lovett, who's our senior vice president, incredibly talented, and he runs all of that with a team of, of six people. And that's all they do is run these projects. Craig, during COVID, earned his PhD in logistics because <laughs> I don't know if you recall, but with a lot of our stuff coming out of Asia, yep. there was an imbalance in containers. Yep. And so if a container used to cost $3,000 for a one-way trip from China or Indonesia to the US, suddenly with all the surcharges, it was $20,000. And so he navigated through all of that. He also navigated through supply chains. And I'd say we brought in almost all of our projects on time and on budget, despite what was going on during COVID. 
Do you work with various different designers or have you latched on to a certain designer that you're using now across multiple projects? We, w- we work with several different designers, but there are a couple that we've latched on to who, who know what we're looking for. The brands have instilled a lot of trust in us as the, because they know the standard that we're, that we're striving for. We completed our Western Maui renovation. We put over $120 million into that, a complete repositioning of the resort. We renovated our Hilton in Cabo. It's now the number one Hilton resort in the world by customer satisfaction scores. We're about to embark on a large renovation here in Florida with the uh, the Diplomat. We just finished a hundred plus million dollar renovation at the uh, Grand Lakes Resort in Orlando. Same thing in JW Marriott Desert Ridge in Scottsdale. So it's uh, it's, a, it's a lot, but it's it's what we do. We evaluate investors, and we love transforming these these resorts. A lot of people spending $100 million at a resort that's a Hilton or a Westin might have the mindset to say, you know what, if I'm spending that kind of money, I'm going to make it a Waldorf Astoria or a St. Regis or a soft brand. Why did you choose in those instances to keep it as a Hilton and a Westin and to make it probably the best Hilton in the brand and the best Westin in the brand? Because I think when you're at that chain scale, if you remember when we went through 08, suddenly everything that said luxury meeting planners weren't able to book, right? Right. So what we found is that if you're in that solid four, four and a half star range, it's not obnoxious for guests to book or for meeting planners to book at any point in a market cycle. Plus, you tend to have more rooms, which you know enable you to, again, go after multiple uh, market segments. And those customers really, when they go on vacation, they spend, you know, they're trying all the activities, they're going out and about, using the restaurants, everything on, on site. So again, it's, it's trying to be multi-user focused and not just sort of high-end leisure or, or only group or whatever it might be. When you're talking to your investors and raising capital, what do you tell them when they say, why do I need hospitality as part of my portfolio? I'm multifamily, I'm industrial, you know, this is an operating business. Why do I need this? Well, I think, you know, the investors who we work with, you're looking for diverse they should be looking for diversification and 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 they are. So if you're long office retail and bonds, you know, why not sprinkle in a little bit of hospitality? I think as what we were discussing earlier with how hospitality in general has performed coming out of COVID, there will be a lot more interest in the sector just given its resilience to inflation, its its ability to reprice more frequently. We traditionally in hospitality had wider cap rates. Yep. So now with higher interest rates, we can absorb those. If you and I are traditionally value-add investors, we can buy at a seven cap finance at an eight to nine and have you know the, the lift as as we turn these assets around i don't know how you do that if you're buying last mile logistics at a three and a half to four percent cap rate and there's nothing you're doing to improve the asset other than paying an interest rate that's seven to eight percent and there is zero margin to error you're so right because in a lot of those asset classes you know take multifamily as a prime example the debt was so cheap they were borrowing from you know Freddie and Fannie, and their debt service coverage ratios were so tight, there was zero margin for error for anything to go wrong. In hospitality, our leverage is typically lower, and our DSCRs are often 
higher. So we have that coverage. So knowing that, I guess, do you think during this time that we're going through, there's going to be more hotel pain? Are we kind of done with that through COVID? And largely that's going to be impacting other real estate asset classes. I don't know if we're done with hotel pain because it's it's like all real estate asset classes. It's a tale of two cities, right? I mean, if you're in the middle part of the country with a pure corporate-oriented hotel, you pick the brand. That traveler is not traveling right now, and I don't know when that corporate traveler does start traveling. They obviously will at some point. So, you know, being in the sort of the smile states and these yep. larger assets that have you know, multiple, you know, user functions to them, those I think are going to continue to do well. The other thing when it comes to talking to investors about hotels that I've learned is that everybody who's ever stayed in a hotel is somewhat of an expert. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. It's it's the truth. Like we all have an opinion about hotels, about what we like, about what we don't like. So there's actually a common thread that you can tug on and talk to with anyone when you're talking about a hotel investment. I love how you said that because I often say hotels are the only asset class where if you're an investor, you could experience the hotel before you invest in the deal. You can walk through it. An office building, you can go see it and you see this big glass building. You're like, oh yeah, Yeah. that looks pretty good. The parking lot's clean and the landscaping's nice. But a hotel, everyone's an expert. You can walk in and understand where the opportunities are, what they're doing right. And I think it translates very well to us who are doing it on the sponsorship side, and then also others that are looking to potentially invest with us. Yeah, absolutely. Where are you going to be spending your investment dollars coming up into this new real estate cycle, which I think we are coming into? You know, we when we raised the, the GP fund, we allowed up to 40% to be invested in debt or MES or PREF or whatever it might be. And I wrongly thought that there would be a huge swath of defaults occurring in sort of the summer of 20 through 21. None of that happened. Everybody cooperated. Everybody worked through it. But I think right now there's going to be a lot of pressure because there's going to be gaps in the capital stack where it's very hard to refinance assets at the moment with debt coming due. So we have this wall of maturities. You've also, on the other hand, have the brands who are very cooperative and very patient during COVID, allowing owners to dip into the FF&E reserves to help pay debt service, to help do other things. And now they, they have to say, look, we need to put back the brand standards. We need to start enforcing PIPs. We need to start enforcing all of that. So there's a bit of a vice that's going to start happening where the capital markets are inefficient and not quite there, and the brands need to start getting stricter about their requirements on on, on on brand standards. And so we expect to be investing quite a bit in that space in the term of rescue capital. I don't like that word, but you know, with friendly capital that can come in and help solve uh, gaps in, in the capital stack. You mentioned the GP fund. We're going to get there. But before we do, maybe you can just walk us through kind of when you came into Trinity to now, what has changed? And I think that you can kind of intro that into what you did during COVID. Yes, I learned a very valuable lesson during 08. So we were a, a team of about eight people. And we'd always prided ourselves on being a lean, mean team, right? and 
when 08 happened, you don't have enough people to walk and chew gum at the same time. And so do you protect the assets you have or do you go on the offensive and, and start investing? And we chose, which was the right decision to protect the assets we had. And that took all of our time, all of our energy, and, and we did that. But we invested one of the, we missed one of the best investing periods probably in my career, right? So when we were rebuilding Trinity with my partners who are Greg Dickens, Lee Nybart, and Ryan Don, we're like, okay, it's the field of dreams. We're gonna build the team and the capital will come. So we went full bore ahead on building a world-class team. And so when COVID hit, and none of us saw that coming, we not only had the assets we owned that were in full repositioning, renovation mode, then you gotta stop these super tankers sort of mid-flight, right, and close them down and unfortunately lay everybody off. It was like, hey, we actually have a team that can go out and be offensive as well, on the offensive rather. So we went out and raised this GP fund during COVID. And I think we've completed over two to two and a half billion dollars worth of acquisitions over the last two years. So we're not, a, we were not only able to protect what we have, but we were able to get to work as well and start investing in, in, in this market cycle. What is a GP fund? So as I'd said earlier, we're an operating partner and that's sort of a niche we've carved for ourselves. And we've always believed that as an operating partner, you should have all of the resources in-house. That's what these, I call them LPs, but they really are joint venture partners. Large private equity firms pay us fees and promotes so that we have the team and the expertise to execute and be their, their arms and legs and getting the business plan done. But the problem that we had at Trinity was how do you and how do you get a balance sheet that's big enough to go and take down these five, six, seven, eight hundred million dollar deals, even if you're only putting in five percent of the equity, right? And so we first had a GP partnership with Oak Tree. They've been phenomenal partners of ours over the years. And we had a hundred million dollar partnership with them. That was pre-COVID. We bought some big assets with them and the GP with us and then other private equity firms on the joint venture side. But during COVID, my partner Lee had this idea. He said, why don't we go to City Private Bank and pitch them on a GP fund? And in essence, if you invest in a fund, you pay fees and a promote to the, to the fund manager. What we've done is we said, okay, you invest in our fund. We'll only charge you an investment management fee. We won't charge you a promote. We will earn our promotes from our joint venture partners. So Whereas before, where we would only be able to put in 5% of the equity in a deal, we're now averaging 30% because we raised the $520 million GP fund. And any promote that we earn, we share 25% of that back with our fund investors. So they're net promote receivers as, to net, as opposed to net promote payers. And it's just a different model. And I'm sure a lot of those investors are on the other side too, where they've invested in the private equity funds and both investments are in the same deal. But it's worked well because we can provide, we can continue to build the resources that we need to on the Trinity side to be the best partner we can be to these private equity firms. And they've been phenomenal partners to us. And, you know, we're looking at a lot of different markets together. Why did you want to go from a $100 million GP fund with kind of a single big LP to raising capital with Citibank? What was it that kind of flipped in your mind during COVID where you guys thought you can actually do that? It's, it's, we started talking to Citi in pure full transparency right before COVID, so December of 2019. 
But as COVID started hitting, we thought there'd be this huge thing, swath of distress. Fortunately, we did couch that by saying, look, although we think distress is coming, we really should be able to invest again at any point in the market cycle. But what's what's becoming increasingly harder and harder in this investing world is to become a first-time fund manager. And with City Private Bank and then the two sovereign wealth funds and the fund of funds who invested with us, we were able to get out of that box. So now we're no longer a first-time fund manager. We have a discretionary fund. We'll get this deployed. There'll be f- future funds after that. And that, 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 that was the big sort of light that went on in my head, and, or not mine, but in, in our partner's head, was if we want to continue to grow, we have to become a steward of capital in addition to just being an operating partner. So now we, we're this hybrid where we're a fund manager and we continue to be an operating partner. You kind of make it sound easy, like we go to City Private Bank. Like I'm telling you, I raised a GP fund during COVID. We didn't go to City Private Bank. We went to friends and family. And our fund is, I don't know, 15% the size of, of your fund. So how do I, or how does anyone go to a big major bank as a first-time fund and get them to say, yeah, yeah, you guys look about right. We'll we'll help you raise some capital. It's track record and it's relationships. And I keep coming back to relationships. So Lee, you know, he had co-founded Apollo Real Estate Advisors, ran Air, ran Area Property Partners and and then merged that into Aries. He had raised money from City Private Bank before. So he was not only well respected by them, a known quantity and 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 so forth. And then they looked at the team, you know, my other partners, Greg Dickens, who I don't think there's anybody better than Greg in the industry in terms of overseeing asset management, project management, understanding markets, all of that stuff. I mean, he is an absolute genius with that. And then Ryan Don running the transactions, you know, the the, the acquisitions, the, the dispositions, the financings, et cetera. So we had the team. Fortunately, Trinity did have a track record. You know, you can't bring a track record with you, unfortunately. Like if Greg and Lee could have, if we could have used their track record, the sky's the limit, right? Right. But, you know, they can't bring their track records with them. So we're relying on Trinity's 25-year track record. But so we had we had a track record. We had the relationships. And there was that moment in time where we could identify what we perceived as the opportunity. And, and we've executed on that. Do you ever get kind of pushback or inquiry to say, well, hey, you guys are the GP, but how much do you? Like, how much do you, Sean, have in the deal? Because my normal GPs have their own money, have their family money, and, and it's all them. I actually think that's like part of the farce. I think everyone kind of has a GP fund. They don't really tell anyone. But with your LPs that you're investing with today, does that ever come up or everyone is fully on board with the structure? It does come up when, you, when you're partnering with, 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 a, with a group for the first time. And I think it's a valid question, right? Like how much skin do you really have in the game? How much do you really care? Um, but once they've worked with us, they realize whether I have five cents in a deal, not just me, but like Trinity, or we have our entire personal net worth in the deal, we care the same amount. We work it all the way through. And I think as our joint venture partners have worked with us, they've, they've realized that. And it's happening on their side too. You know, Blackstone raises a $30 billion fund. It's not all John Gray's money. And John's, right. John's a phenomenal <laughs> guy. But like, so we're all leveraging capital at some level, but right. we view the equity in our GP fund 
when I say we view it as our own money, we treat it as our own money. It doesn't matter if, you know, what percentage we are of that fund. We're vigilant about it. We're all over it every day. We try and be true stewards of the capital. So one of the things about a GP fund that I always found interesting was the sharing of the fees. How did you land on 25%? And then I do want to talk about the investment management fee because that's a really important point that a lot of people don't understand or respect. And you got to keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can kind of talk about how you came up with the fee structure. There was honestly no science to it. We just thought, what is a, a, an appropriate amount? We proposed it, City accepted it, and, and we moved on from there. It was like 50% was too much. 10% doesn't really mean anything. 25% just seemed like an appropriate amount. And I, I don't honestly remember there being any more science behind it than, than that. I landed on the same thing. It's like yeah. 25% sounds yeah. pretty good. Oh, That's what we're going to do. Like. <laughs> it's better than they're getting because I, I don't, I think most investors that are sophisticated underestimate like what a double promote is. Yeah. And maybe you can talk about how a double promote is a selling point for you and impacts other investors that are investing in a typical LP fund. Yeah. So, and there's nothing nothing against it but if if you invest in a typical private equity fund that then uses an operating partner you're paying that fund fees in a promote and then they're paying us fees in a promote so there's a double promote but but the thing we have to remember as well is that if you're starwood capital or blackstone you know you can attract it's it's it's, it's much easier for investors because they don't just sit there and sort through a hundred managers they can say, okay, Blackstone, we'll give you a billion dollars and just spread it across all your strategies. It's it's much more efficient, it's easier, et cetera. Whereas with us, like you have to find the investor that likes real estate and then that investor who likes hospitality real estate and this specific market. And it's like all these hoops. And sometimes if you're a if you're a if you're a a sovereign wealth fund or a or a pension fund and you've got to put out fifty billion dollars, like and there's three of you on the team. You know, how many meetings can you take? How many managers do you want to manage at the end of the day? But that is part of our pitch. It's, I think there is a movement by investors, by the pension fund, sovereign wealth in investors, to get more directly to the operating partner, to sort of get to the source and, and, and back them, in addition to backing the large managers as well. So that means having a smaller team at the big... So Blackstone's maybe not the best example, but having a big LP like Blackstone, they might have a smaller team and then rely on your team to go out and execute. Does that mean then that you are trying to build relationships with these groups before you have the deal? Or do you find yourself tying up a deal and then mostly going to talk to current groups in your portfolio or new ones? It's a mixture of both. I mean, traditionally what we would do all the way from the beginning of the firm is tie up a deal and then just run around like crazy so to, we get all it, do. To, to get it capitalized. Whereas now, as we start looking at a deal, we will start initiate conversations. I mean, we bought the Hyatt Regency in Greenwich without a partner because we needed to move quickly. And we still don't have a partner in that deal. We bought, we went under contract on the diplomat here in Hollywood without a partner. We went hard on our own and then scrambled to to and found found a partner to come in but you know when we bought indian wells 
we had Oak Tree with us from the beginning. When we bought the W Hollywood LA, we had Oak Tree with us from the beginning. So it's we were negotiating to buy the Four Seasons Dallas, and you know we met uh, not met we knew them, but Partners Group came in uh, you know along the way. We were when we bought the Eastern Miami, we partnered with Sataris, and uh, they they were with us from the beginning as we had. Well, we started ahead of them, but they they were with us sort of lockstep along the way. So it's a little bit of both. You mentioned earlier that in 2008, you feel like you missed the boat a little bit. And what you were seeing with COVID was going to be potentially the greatest opportunity you might see in your lifetime now. what Looking back on it, now that we're kind of done with COVID, what were the things that you were seeing that you leveraged your experience during 2008 to then make the assumption that this was going to be an amazing investment period. The thing I remember from 08 is that markets recover a lot quicker than we think, right? And so as we were going through COVID, I mean, I, we didn't know which way was up, but I was like, this is going to be over as quickly as it started. And so how do we position ourselves to be investing? How do we continue to invest through the cycle? Um, you know, and, and, we were ready, as I said earlier, we were ready for major distress. It just never materialized. In fact, it went the other way, where it just, with all of the stimulus money, I mean, you know, markets and travel and everything went, went, went crazy. But again, it was, it was having the team that we could be grounded with what we had and be really evaluating opportunities real time, making moves, you know, being out there talking to people and, and just being active. Because, I mean, we need to, be active all the time to stay current with what's going on. Got to be in the flow. Absolutely. Do you think, like when you were running around pre this first GP fund, syndicating deals like everyone else, you might have had a big partner helping, but I guess you would describe yourself as a syndicator. Now that you have a first fund, maybe you're more of a capital allocator. Do you think about the enterprise value of the business differently at all, or is it still the same company? I don't know if it's worth anything, but I'm primarily focused on the deals. Or are you now in a slightly different stratosphere where the business of the business has value? Well, we've always tried to position ourselves as investors and not promoters, right? Because, and and you get put in that promoter bucket when you're syndicating equity. It's just it's just natural. But so we've we've tried to be disciplined. Look, we're investors. These are the the deal fundamentals. This is why we want to do it. We're not just purely doing it for the promote, although that's how we get compensated. So we've always tried to be investors. I'd say with Trinity now, because we have a team of thirty five people and growing, you know, we have to think more about the enterprise value because that's the mothership that everybody is working towards building and growing and and having a part of and it's part of everybody's livelihood so as opposed to just jumping from deal to deal we spend a lot of time thinking about what should trinity be in 5 10 15 20 years time let, let me be clear i have no desire to do anything else you know my kids ask me what i'm going to do when i retire and i'm like why would i retire so i can travel why why would i retire so i can hang out with my friends why would I retire? You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, I feel like I'm stealing a paycheck every day. I literally work with my friends at Trinity. I partner with our friends at these private equity firms. I borrow money from my friends at these lenders. 
the, the, the professionals and all these brands are friends. It's, you it's get to like, travel to the best hotels. Yeah, so it's 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 not. I mean, of course, it's stressful and it's and all of that stuff. But it's when you love what you do, you're not working. It's just p- part of your life. So you sort of parlay all of that into yes. To answer your question, maybe six seven years ago, we didn't think about the enterprise value of Trinity, but today we do, and we think a lot about what it should be and how do we shape it into what it needs to be to be around for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I want to go back to kind of like your team and and the culture a little bit because you've brought it up and 35 people in real estate is a real team, especially coming from eight people, entrepreneurial, grinding it out. What's your thought on the whole work from home thing? And maybe you can also talk about what might have changed in your company culturally, like during the COVID process, particularly sure. now that you're moving mainland side? Yeah, I, I'm safe in this room, right? You're I'm, safe. I'm not a big. No I, one can I, attack you. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't believe in uh, working from home. I think it works for, for for our business. I think it works in certain industries, um, but for us, you know, how do you build a team culture over video conferencing? How do you how do the younger people learn working remotely? How do you build th- th- that sort of cohesiveness and collaboration? I just think it's hard. It's interesting, during COVID, I sort of really learned the humanity side of this thing. Because, you know, Hawaii is one of those markets where it's a lot of multi-generations. You know, you've got a lot of families living together from grandparents down. And so there were a lot of vulnerable people during COVID. And so out of choice, it wasn't mandated by us. People just kept showing up at the office in Honolulu. And so what we did is we said, okay, as a courtesy, we're going to have nurses come in twice a week and provide free COVID tests. And the results are completely confidential. Yeah. So everybody utilized that twice a week. We didn't have a single COVID outbreak in our office for the first two years when everybody was at the most yeah. vulnerable. Because you know what? We all felt responsible to each other and yep. for each other, so it was really, really uh, remarkable. But and you'll have to r- repeat the second part of your question. But I- I'm not a believer in in in, in work from home, um, but I do think it's something that's here to stay. You know, we were interviewing asset managers about six months ago, and I think we had twelve candidates, literally from ten different markets, and not one of them would relocate to Beverly Hills. It wasn't that they didn't want to go to Beverly Hills. It was they didn't want to relocate from where they were because they don't need to today. But for our business, when we're trying to build a culture, and really a culture that is, excuse my language, but a no arsehole policy. Everybody's got a tree. I mean, I always look at Blackstone. Their real estate group has the greatest culture there is. It's not, I've never come across an arsehole in their group. And if there's one that's questionable, they tend not to be there much longer. But that doesn't mean that they're pushovers or they're easy. They're all wicked smart and and get stuff done. And But they're all good people. And that's what we try and emanate. How do we continue to be good people, you know, and, and have a, a, a very friendly work environment? Because you spend most of your day together, you know, so make those people count. Is there anything specifically that you do to foster this no asshole culture, because it's very common actually in real estate, private equity, that some firms are very competitive, even within the own firm, like who's bringing in the deal, who's showing the deal to the boss, all that kind of stuff. What, what's, what are you doing in 
Trinity to make sure that you don't fall into a different path? Well, I think it's very important that you 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 sort of follow your own music or you lead by example. And you know, my partners and I—it's it's the way you know you treat people, and you know, so that's the way you expect people to treat you and to treat others. And it's all the way down to communication. I mean, people are all getting too shorthand on email, right? There's nothing wrong with saying dear so-and-so and blah, 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 thank you, or my best. Like, I mean, people could pick these emails up in 20 years and read them out of context. I mean, it's just, it's all about communication. It's all about how you treat others. It's all about how you want to be treated. And it's all about reputation because back to reputation and relationships, that's the cornerstone of what we do. That's it. And hospitality. You got to treat people nice. Exactly. So going back to the GP fund, do you have any desire now that you've tasted the discretionary nature of that capital to raise just a fully discretionary non-GP fund? No, we we really like where we are. I mean, not to say that that won't change over time, but we really like the niche that we're in. You know, we're raising capital on investors understand when we raise capital on investors understand it. We have a niche with with our joint venture partners. So for us it's 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 working right now. What would surprise people about what you learned raising that first time fund, going through the process with City? You know, there's a lot of background work that starts. It's like months and months of preparing the documents and doing all of that stuff. But what really amazed me, and this was this was the benefit of COVID, I'd never heard the word Zoom before <laughs> March 1st of 2020. Never right. heard it. Right. And Ben Bianchi at Oak Tree like sent me a link on my on my on a text message and I clicked it and he was on a chairlift in Verbier and then I realized <laughs> it was his background screen and he wasn't on a chairlift. But we raised the fund with City all over Zoom. Wow. So I would sit in the guest room in my house. And I would start on the East Coast at 3 a.m. Hawaii time and just go around the world that day. And and so the use of technology and and doing it all over Zoom was just it was amazing to me because we were thinking about how do you, how do we even fly around to meet people? How do we do people even want to meet us? And so City figured it out for us and it was it was terrific. I've often found myself when raising capital, I try and tell people what our competitive edge is. What's your competitive edge? What were you telling those investors that you're going to do differently from everyone else out there in hospitality? We were we were pitching them on, although we couldn't use everybody's prior track records, but we were pitching them on just the breadth of our experience. Because when you looked at the partners within Trinity and the number of hotels we'd been involved in, not just in the US, but on a global basis, you know, the relationships we have at the senior most levels of Hilton, Marriott, and, and and Hyatt, and then the relationships we have with our joint venture partners and the niche that we've carved with them. I, have, I think it helped them understand that we really have access to proprietary deal flow and a way to source opportunities, or even if it's a fully brokered process that we can sort of put ourselves ahead as the most credible buyer. And that all resonated because back to relationships, like going into COVID, we didn't know what was happening on the debt side, but having relationships with lenders, with services, with the brands who were seeing things and, and borrowers were in trouble, you know, with, with funds, understanding where 
where funds were in their fund life and assets that were remaining in the fund and where we could be helpful and in, in getting involved. You know, all of that was, you know, and then trying to figure out the flow of capital, right? Like, where's it coming from? Who are the buy? Like, we always underwrite the greater fool theory. Like, when we buy an asset, who's going to buy this from us? And you got to be thinking about that at the time of the acquisition, right? And it can change and it does change. But it's always like, once we do all of this work, what is our exit ultimately? So when you think about that, a lot of your assets are big, they're expensive. Yeah. How, how do you think about the end buyer and who is that going to be? Because just because of the size of some of these assets, these big major resorts, it's weeding out a lot of potential buyers. It is, but you know, a lot of the buyers don't want to do the work, right? And I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Like They want to buy a renovated asset that's approaching stabilization, and it can go into you know, into their portfolio and, yep. and, and, and tick along. So we haven't seen all the buyers back and they come at, in ebbs and flows. So we sort of saw the REITs putting their foot back, their toe back in the water with Ryman's acquisition of Hill Country, which I thought was a brilliant acquisition. You know, we will see the foreign buyers coming back. When I talk to people in Europe, there's a tremendous interest from investors in the Eurozone to be investing in the US. So they'll be back. The Middle East has been quiet. I mean, they've got so much capital right now with where the price of oil is. They'll they'll be back. So for those bigger box assets, it's that sort of more institutional investor that'll be uh, coming in. And then, you know, not saying that Blackstone will buy from us or Brookfield, but they have in the past. And, you know, they've got a lot of dry powder right now. So I think as soon as people see some light at the end of this tunnel, they'll start investing again. You're actually a cool intermediary because a lot of these big funds, Blackstone, Starwood, Brookfield, won't buy from each other. So you're coming in the middle and Blackstone's notorious for not fixing it, operating it, but then not renovating it for the next guy, letting him do it. it presents a really good opportunity for your business model to execute this little mini business plan in between these two mega long-term holders. Yeah. And look, they they both have been great counterparties. You know, we haven't sold to Brookfield, but we bought two assets from them that were great to work with. We've bought and sold to Blackstone. We've financed with Blackstone. They've been terrific. So yeah, and then, you know, I, th I think it's really watching what's going to come out of some of these family offices in Latin America and Asia, and as they start to gear up again. Everyone talks about proprietary deal flow. It's really hard to actually get. And are you the one on your team sourcing that? Are you training you, your partners and others to find that flow and how, how are you doing it? Yeah, we're, so I'd say within the partnership, we're all doing it. You know, Greg has tremendous relationships going back over his whole career, Lee the same, Ryan, you know, you know I'd say the Eastills and the JLLs and they do a phenomenal job of, of being, you know, sort of in the middle of all of these transactions. But even still, you need the relationship either with them or on the other side to sort of put yourself in pole position. Because at the end of the day, you know, price is one thing, but it's surety of execution is probably as important as price, especially as we're in this uncertain market right now. So having a reputation that you close and you're not a retrader, that, that, yep. that's important. So maybe we'll use that as a transition to talk about management and you don't manage so you have to rely on someone else 
to manage. How do you think about that? Because oftentimes the deals that you're buying, you're keeping the manager in place. So how do you execute your business plan with an existing manager that's already been there? You know, it's it's interesting. We were um, we were buying the Hilton Cabo in two thousand and seventeen, eighteen, I think, and we're buying it from Brookfield. And I got a call and said, you know, ma- ma- um, Hilton has a rofo or a rofo, yeah, considering executing. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, there's only ten or twelve years left on the contract. It's a very important asset to them, so they might execute it to lengthen the contract and then sell. So I called my good friend Kevin Jacobs at Hilton and I said, Hey Kevin, it's it's us. We don't want to change anything. We want Hilton. We would like a couple of things from you and you'd you'd like a long term contract, which we want to give you. So what we would like is a tighter radius restriction, which they agreed to. And we would like the ability to sell a portion of the rooms to Hilton Grand Vacations. And, you know, they agreed to that. And so it it all worked out. It all worked out great. But what we've done with the brands of Hilton Married Hyatt is that we've proven to them over time that we want the best for the assets. So if we bring the capital and we renovate it in a way that these assets are going to perform at their optimal level, it's good for everybody. It's good for the brand. It's good for the fee stream. It's good for the ownership it's, and, and, and so forth. So there's a lot of trust between those brands and us that what we're doing is actually going to translate into real cash flow like yeah and we've proven that time and time again so and it's not to say that we don't have our differences i mean there is an appropriate amount of tension between us and 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 the brand or the management at any time but at the end of the day we're friends and we have the same goal they know we're not coming in with the mindset to figure out how to terminate the contract and take back the asset and do this and that i mean that is not our that is not our goal I mean, we when we bought the diplomat, we brought back Hilton. They were in the asset before, and they made a meaningful investment with us in key money, and we couldn't be more excited with them there. You know, we bought the Four Seasons Dallas. Four Seasons wanted to exit because they have a newer newer asset, and we thought it would be a terrific Ritz Carlton. Married agreed to do that. We're we're a sort of white label now as we complete certain pieces of the renovation. But they know that we're going to we're going to produce a, a rich product that's going to be phenomenal for that market in Dallas. In working with these brands like Four Seasons and Hilton, Four Seasons, in my opinion, is like best of the best. I'd be a little intimidated, kind of maybe telling them what to do, this, that, and the other thing. Maybe I'd feel more comfortable with Hilton. That's probably because I'm friendly with Hilton. What What have you seen as being a prime differentiator between a Four Seasons and a Hilton, whether it's at a Waldorf level or just at a Hilton level, what is Four Seasons focused on typically and what is Hilton focused on typically? You know, I think it's really making sure that you're heard and that you've got a team at the property level that that you can communicate with, that they've got a regional team that you and they can communicate with and all the way up to, to the, uh, the corporate team. We don't have a ton of experience with Four Seasons other than other than Dallas. So most of it is with Hilton, Marriott, Hyatt. But I, I think it's how you communicate with them. You know, you can go in with a bat and try and get attention. You know, you're not going to get very far. You can be collaborative and you can, you know, sort of produce what you say you're going to produce in terms of the dollars to renovate and the team that knows, like on our side, like uh, 
our asset management team and project management team know what they're talking about. They're constructive. They're proactive. You know, so the, you just build this collaboration. And again, it's just over the years that you you, you have this reputation and trust level that sure they're going to be tough conversations and unpleasant days and nights, but you know you you you're true to what you say you're you're going to do, and you're and you really have the right intentions in mind, and that's to make money and to have an asset that we're all proud of. You're unique in that a lot of your hotels, the food and beverage is operated by you, I think, or the manager, not necessarily a third party. How have you found to navigate this whole F&B restaurant thing in the luxury resort space? Well, let's face it. There's nothing worse than eating in a hotel restaurant, like yep. just a generic like buffet hotel restaurant. The worst. So what Greg Dickens has been doing is working with consultants to find consultant chefs. So in a lot of situations, given the union or given just the, the, the labor within the hotel, yeah, the hotel will operate it. But how do you create these bespoke, unique F&B outlets that don't feel like a generic hotel restaurant? And, and my greatest example is in Orlando at the Ritz-Carlton. We brought in a chef from Dallas called John Tazar. He has a restaurant in Dallas called Knife. And we put Knife and Spoon in the Ritz Grand Lakes. And the true test is always, can you get the local community in there to eat? Yep. And they're in there all the time. And that steakhouse now has a, has a it's a one-star Michelin restaurant. Really? And then we have another celebrity chef in in Desert Ridge and, and so forth. So we focus on that a lot. Like the East Hotel, when we bought the East, it's, it's operated by Swire who developed it, but it truly feels like an independent hotel when you go in there, whether you're at Sugar on the rooftop or one of the, the the restaurant outlets so it's 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 just making sure that they all have their own personalities and if you can attract the local residents then you know you're doing something right you talked about the east i want to talk about that one because that's in miami that deal was floating around during covid and we were like looking at it the basis seemed really good can you kind of break that deal down for everyone cuz that i think will go down as one of the best deals ever done in miami yeah so Again, like we we met Kieran Bowers who at the time was running Swire, you know the, the the Brickle City Center development, and we kept looking at this, and it's three hundred and fifty two keys. We didn't even know how great a location it was. I mean, it's sort of because we're not a from lot's Miami. changed, yeah, we're in the past two Miami. years, though, yeah, we're not from Miami, but within the key count, there are eighty eight, I think, one, two, and three bedroom service departments that are part of the uh, the rental pool. The, the, the part of the, its owned inventory, right? But they were sort of leased out on longer term basis. But as we kept looking at it, you know, all of the all of the potential bidders wanted to terminate Swire as part of the bid and bring in another brand, lifestyle brand. And we kept looking at it and saying, you know, this is a really cool product. It's a really unique unique product. And what's the problem with having Swire operate it? They're good operators. We know their assets in Asia. And we like that independent sort of feel to it. But when we dug into it, because it was during COVID and was difficult, you know, there's a lot of work that could be done on the distribution. There's a lot of OTA business, et cetera. So we bought it together with Sataris. And now that asset didn't need much renovation at all. It was brand new. 
But we worked with Swire on fixing the distribution channels, and that, together with what's been happening in South Florida, the performance just popped. It's been doing really, really well. And then as we looked at those 80-plus, one-, two-, and three-bedroom units, we're like, are you better off signing six-month contracts or just keeping them in the suite inventory and charging a lot more on a short-term basis, which we've been doing? So... And then, of course, the development has come to us with, with everything that's going on around this. So we really value that relationship with Squire. And we'd love to do you know, more East hotels around the country as we find opportunities with them because it sort of brings that different flair, right, that really works. It does. So I, I think most people miss the deal because they wanted to blow out Squire. What did you see in Swire that gave you the comfort to mitigate that risk? It doesn't even seem like it was a risk. I guess, what, what do you think you saw that others missed? What we saw, quite frankly, was that I don't think there was going to be a transaction unless you worked with Swire. I mean, they, they had put too much effort over all these years to create Brickle City Center, which is a true landmark. They'd built a hotel that is a true landmark within a landmark. And Again, we don't operate. We, we need an operator, so why not work with them? They clearly know what they're doing. We could bring our asset management skills. They could bring their hotel management skills, and it worked. And and so they didn't really know us well. We didn't know them, but we've built this trust and working relationship over the last two years, and the performance is proving it in the hotel right now. When you were buying deals during COVID, you're buying them through this like kind of peak and cycle, and some of them were at frothy times. What were you doing during the frothy times to give you the comfort that you weren't going to have an issue down the road and you were paying the right price per key or the right multiple on EBITDA, whatever it was? You know, sort of back to our my appraisal days, you look at, you know, you know, you look you look at comps, you look at replacement costs, you look at a DCF model. And so everything other than, than than the east, which I would still say is a, is you know is a value add because of the repositioning of the of the operation, they're all value add opportunities. So what you're looking at today is not what we were looking at then. Today is not what it was going to be in three years' time once you've executed the business plan. Like looking at the Four Seasons Las Colinas in its current format is not what it's going to be when we're done in two years' time. And it should really be an alternate to Dallas residents who would normally go to the hill country for a, a staycation, right? They can just be there and then you've got the proximity to the offices and the airport and, and all of those other things. And then you look at the Hyde Regency Greenwich. You know, these bedroom communities are direct beneficiaries of COVID because people aren't commuting into the city every day. So what do we do there? Do we add like a true, you know, guest and member fitness program with pickle and puddle and all kinds of other things you know we're going through all of that right now or and there's no good hotels in greenwich no, like nothing the, really that well there's nothing around there yeah all of the hotels closed and then you look at like the omni san diego i mean when you like you're across from the convention center and you and you're connected to petco park i mean COVID is going to pass and those are good things to be proximate to and you're on the edge of the gas lamp district so we were, and you have to renovate it, but like, so we were, we were always looking two, three years out. And so we're not sort of just buying on today's economics. It's on the value add and what it's going to be once we complete with the business plan. 
What did you learn going through those 10 rate hikes when you're buying hotels and literally they're increasing rates throughout that period? Well, A, SOFA was a new acronym for us. Understanding a SOFA curve was a new acronym. Oh, no, not a new acronym, but a new, but a new term. Right. But it's just being ultra disciplined on timing of deposits, making sure you've got certain milestones in place before you go non-refundable. Like, do you have a lender? Do you have a lender? Is it a lender you trust? Is it somebody that you've transacted? It's, it's just, again, back to relationships. I mean, you've got to know who you're with every step of the way that they'll work with you and won't leave you high and dry. How do the partners at Trinity think about strategy and deal criteria? Is it something that you guys write out every quarter and talk about? Is it gut instinct? What does that look like? Well, what we've been focusing on since we relaunched Trinity seven years ago, brand managed, as I said, Hilton Marriott Hyatt for the most part, 300 rooms and larger. Smile states for the most part, Florida, Texas, Arizona, California, Hawaii, and destination type hotels. People are smiling in California. They're just paying a lot of taxes. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> well, we call it the smirk states when you add Hawaii. Right. You go <laughs> but, but then, and then the destination type hotels. And even I'd say the East is a destination hotel. The, the no Omni doubt. San Diego is a destination hotel. So that's really. That's the broad criteria. Then it comes down to the specific markets and specific brands and, and so forth. You bought The Diplomat in Hollywood, Florida recently. And before you bought it, someone very well known with other irreplaceable assets in South Florida was trying to buy it. Can you kind of break down the whole deal story on that? Because I think it's a real fascinating one because not many times... In your career, do you get to take down an asset that is probably, you know, life changing in many sense, but beachfront, waterfront on the other side? Tell me about it. Well, it was Brookfield, who we transacted with before, and it's a type of asset that we absolutely excel in, right? But you know, Jeff, who I've never met in person, but I have a huge amount of respect for with with what he's done with the assets he owns. I mean, you know, he he was buying it. We were bidding as well, but we weren't really capitalized at the time. We we always had a business plan to bring Hilton back in, but there was that sort of weird moment in the cycle where, in the COVID cycle, where Omicron hit and group business, which was starting to come back, sort of started retreating. Yep, and you know the deal that had. Whoever had it tied up at the time, I don't, I don't, I don't know if Jeff was involved, but it had it, it fallen apart. And I and we called Brookfield. I think it was over the summer of of no, we were working on it over the holidays last year, so eighteen months ago. And then we got into that weird Omicron time, so we had a contract almost fully negotiated, and and we stopped. And we were looking to to put new debt on it at the time, and then we let it sit, and then activity started building up. And as my partners and I started talking to each other over the summer of last year, we were like a thousand rooms on the beach, one of only two in the country, right? The other one is the Del Coronado. That's a thousand rooms or bigger. Connected to its own net 200,000, gross 400,000 square foot convention center. Connected by a sky bridge to another 10 acres of land on the Intracoastal. 
I mean, I don't think anything is more irreplaceable than that. And it's a space that we knew well. You know, these group-oriented big box hotels. We had our handshake agreement with Hilton in terms of them making it a signia. And we decided that the best thing to do would be to put our money where our mouth was and sign the contract and put up a hard deposit. And we then met Credit Swiss Asset Management and started working with them after we'd gone hard. And they believed in our business plan as well. We then worked, and it, it, it takes a village with deals like this, right? I mean, everybody from JLL to Brookfield to Credit Suisse Asset Management, us, Hilton, all sort of working together and then working on the loan assumption because we assumed the existing SASB debt. And, you know, Brookfield was cooperative with timing and so forth. They gave us the requisite time to, uh, to get it done. But we couldn't be more excited about it. It's uh, it's one of those truly irreplaceable assets. And again, with with what we've just gone through the last few years, even if you were to find the land, I mean, who, how can you build something like that today? It's just it's incredible. Yeah. Okay. So twenty million dollars hard. What was that decision like? And how close was your partner behind you putting up that money? And were you talking to them before, or were you just saying? I'm putting $20 million hard. That's going to be my motivation to get this thing done. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've, it was definitely the motivation, but we knew we would get it done. I mean, knock on wood, we, we haven't failed, right? In terms of getting deals done. But it was a tough economic climate. It was hard. It was a tough economic climate, but when you laid out, and we'd, again, we'd negotiated time, but when you laid out what we'd done with similar sized assets, and we could actually, like, when we met Credit Suisse Asset Management, we took them to, First thing we did before we even took them to the diplomat, we took them to Orlando and said, look, this is what it looked like before. This is what it looks like now. This is the business plan. And uh, and then took them to, to to Hollywood to show it to them. But it was, trust me, I'm not going to say they weren't sleepless nights. They were. But we always knew that we would we would get it done. What's the business plan now? At the diplomat? Yeah. I'd say it's similar to Grand Lakes and Desert Ridge, whereby how do you take... So the rooms, everything's in great shape. The rooms are in great shape, so not much work there. But how do you take this big box asset and break it down so if you're a leisure traveler coming in, you feel as at home and have the amenities for you as you do if you're a group traveler and or if you're somebody who just lives in Hallandale or in Hollywood and you're going there to eat, right? So we've got four, we'll end up with five or six great individual food and beverage outlets. We're redoing the pools and that whole experience. We're debating whether we build a beach club or not. That'll be another buy-in experience. We're going to create a signature club in the building. We're going to blow out the spa and the, um, the fitness and create something that's really energizing and, and full service. So it's just bringing and then the cabanas, which we love and, you know, things like that. And then even before we closed, we were under contract with BH, with Isaac Toledano and related group to sell our development parcels across across the A1A. So there'll be, you know, a beautiful new condo building going up there and, you know, all of those residents using the facilities and so forth. Did you keep a piece in the condo sale or did you sell it outright and, and you have no more upside? Yeah. So we're selling the, uh, yeah, we're selling the condo outright, the condo side outright. We still own you know, the parking that we need to own across the way. A beach club would be really 
huge because there's all these beach clubs in South Beach, nothing yeah. much north. Yeah. Maybe you should look at putting a water park on top of the parking garage. Yeah. The JW one rips. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I went there without staying in a room and I think I spent like $200 per person to get into that thing for a day. I was definitely the only one that spent a thousand bucks for five of us <laughs> to do that. Next time I'm just getting a hotel room, but that place is packed yeah. every single day. I want to know what opportunities you might be looking at now with your size and scale that might be off the radar a little bit that people might be surprised about. I don't need to know specifically, but is there anything that would be a little bit outside the playbook that you're looking at? Well, what we think about all the time, and KSL's done a great job with this, is how do we take our broad-term hospitality expertise and invest in leisure in general? So I don't know what that means. Does that mean investing in FBOs? Does it mean investing in experiential companies? Does it mean investing in management companies? You know, anything across the the, the, the leisure or the hospitality spectrum, as opposed to just being a bricks and mortar hotel investor. I think that's sort of the next step to take. I mean, you know, Blackstone and groups like that have done a great job of investing in technology companies and media companies and all those things that service the hospitality yep. industry. So, Sotares. Yeah. And, and Sotares, I mean, they have Amex business travel and so forth. So, and Hertz. So, we need to start thinking about those because it's it's all connected at the end of the day. Do we look at service departments? Do we look at, you know, all of that? What do you think about micro resorts or, you know, KSL, I think owns under canvas. Mm -hmm. There's like this thing called getaway. Those, you know, KSL is a powerhouse. They know what they're doing, but some of the others scare me because the tech valuation might be there, but the actual operating metrics, because it's hard to scale. It's actually real estate, and you're only doing a couple of them at a time. Scare me. Have you spent any time thinking about these smaller things and if there's a real business there? Well, I mean, sort of tangentially to, uh, to answer that, I don't know if you know John Colan from Margaritaville, but John John's the CEO of Margaritaville and one of the guys I love speaking to the most. I mean, he's a really interesting guy. And, and the way that he described it to me the first time we chatted, he said, no offense to Hilton or Marriott, but you don't walk around and see anybody with a Hilton or a Marriott tattoo. <laughs> but you see people with Margaritaville tattoos. Yeah. And then you look at the breadth of what they've gotten into from not only their latitudes, you know, yep. um, not senior living, but you know, 55 and older communities, but you look at their RV parks. <sighs> And to me, that 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 is a fascinating business, right? So you've got the covered land play overlaid with brand that really resonates with with a segment of the population that has money and wants to enjoy themselves. So I think that's really interesting. I do think this, I agree with you on the tech versus sort of normal accounting valuation for for some of these other businesses, but I think like Outdoorsy and Under Canvas and all that, I think they're, they're really interesting. The glamping is really interesting. I'll tell you, you know, during COVID, that June of 2020, Warren Dehan and, and I, we each rented 34-foot RVs and drove from LA to New Jersey. Really? Over like two and a half weeks with oh, our wow. families. And for my kids, and I can say the same for his, they still talk about it as the best vacation they've ever had. And it was probably the least expensive vacation we've ever been on. But 
just being all together in a vehicle, you know, sort of glamping because yeah. we weren't sleeping in tents. It was a pretty comfortable vehicle. It's those are experiences that we should be doing, like driving around, you know, Yosemite and you know, going to Mount Rushmore and doing all of that. I took my daughter on an RV trip and it was so fun, like looking in the little rearview mirror and seeing her sitting at the table yeah. and yeah. driving that thing around. I think I was going too fast for what those things can handle. I'm sure you did it too, but it is it is pretty fun. The one thing I think Margaritaville actually gets and understands is throwing gasoline on the fire once they get people there, creating the experience. So many of the other ones focused on lack of experience and being alone. But I think now post-COVID, everyone wants the experience. So you want to roll up in your RV and have a great bar to go to, have a great restaurant to go to, or have a pool and all this other stuff. Are you seeing that in other operators potentially? Or do you think Margaritaville is just going to run away with that? Well, I th- you've got, was it KIA? I, f- I forget the, the, the yep. I forget the acronym, but you know, Margaritaville, people can really identify with that brand and sort of have an idea as to what it is. But I don't know if you experienced this. To me, the coolest part of the RV experience were meeting the other people in these RV parks. And like everybody's walking around with a coffee or a glass of wine and they're just super friendly, no guard up, just, you know. So that was the, the fun part of it. But yeah, I don't... I, I'm sure they'll emerge, but I haven't seen anybody that can come close, that has come anywhere near providing that on a scale basis, what Margarita built. To that point, like everything that you're saying is social, social, social. A lot of the ones that I've seen are very solitary. So I think, I think we're onto something. I think there's a, there's a trend there. Yeah. I want to transition now just for the last segment on kind of partnerships and business, because you've built your business on relying on partners. And I want to understand from you what makes a good partner and how do you figure out who's going to be a big partner or good partner when you're interviewing them? You know, when you first, the hard part, when you whether you're interviewing people that you're going to hire or, or people you're going to partner with, you can't, it's very hard to interview for judgment. You don't know how people are going to react or behave in certain situations, right? So then it, you rely on how do you connect the dots in the background, like who do you know in common, who can vouch for you, who doesn't vouch for you, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm honestly a big believer, again, in, in, in communication. So, you know, they talk about rubber balls and glass balls. You know, the rubber balls are bounce back, but things like your reputation and your word and things like that is a glass ball. If you drop it once, it breaks, right? And how do you put it back together? So with the partners, it's like you truly know somebody's what somebody's made of when you're in the trenches together. And over our collective careers, we've been in the trenches many times, and I know who I want to be in the trench with, and I know who I will not be in the trench with again. And within Trinity, you know, Greg and Lee and Ryan, we've been in the trenches together in a number of situations, and I wouldn't want to be with anybody else but those three people. And then it it builds out to our team from there where, you know, I just trust them implicitly, and I I hope they feel the same way about me, that we do what we say we're going to do. We're honest. We're going to take care of everybody. You know, we're all in this to win. We're all in this to profit together. It's not just the senior people taking all the money, et cetera, et cetera. So how did you think about incentives when you were setting up the fund with Trinity? How did you align that with your culture and this 
partnership that you have with the three others? Yes. Yeah, so the, the way it the way it works is, at least in 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 our business, you know, you I think we earn salaries and bonuses or whatever to to live off of, right? Right. I, I'm a firm believer in 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 being incentivized by the wins, by being incentivized by the promotes and and and, the, and those profits, and making sure that those are shared with the team. So we've have an allocated percentage of the promotes that we share on a point basis with with the team, and you know there's a certain amount of the points that are deeded or given to them. And then we have discretion over giving them additional points on each deal as and when they they hit. You know, so I'd say that everybody in our team is motivated in, in that way. What's been the biggest challenge in in doing that? The biggest challenge? I'd say, you know, some people are very open in terms of telling you when they're happy and they're not happy. And others, and, and some people are not. And as I say, you know, you always want to hear the bad news right away. You want to hear when people are unhappy right away. You want to hear that stuff. The good news you can deal with at any point. But I wondered, like, if people are unhappy or dissatisfied or or if there's bad news, please, that, that's what I, we need to know right away. Because the quicker you get that information, the, the better you can react and, and if you can rectify it. I asked all the guests in the podcast the same closing question. I'm really excited about your answer, given the hotels that you're staying at, given the ones that you're looking at buying. But in your portfolio, out of your portfolio, I don't care. What is your favorite hotel in the world? You could pick more than one. You know, I I, I just like the certain places that just like the Borolac where I started my career. I mean, I took my kids back there 10 years ago, and I hadn't been back since Warren and I worked there. And it was just like, it's just so nostalgic walking back in. So that's somewhere very special. I've always loved the Barclay in, in London. I've always loved the Plaza Athena in Paris. I basically grew up in the Okura Hotel in Tokyo, although it's been torn down and, 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 and rebuilt now. And then one of the, f- the first hotel that we bought when we relaunched Trinity in 2016 was the Ritz-Carlton Kapalua. And that hotel really holds a special place in my heart. You know, it was meant to be built oceanfront and they discovered a hawaiian burial ground there so there were there were bones right and there was a lot of controversy in the hotel and if you've been there but eventually got pushed quite far back so it's it's sort of set back it's probably a good five seven minute walk to the beach but they in hawaii there's this word mana but there's a feeling of mana when you're there and we had this i think he's still there but clifford who was the hawaiian cultural advisor we formed a very special bond but you know, that hotel had never performed well, and we owned it for under two years. It achieved record performance. Like it was, we poured all of our energy into that asset to say, look, this is what this team, Trinity, can do working in collaboration with a brand, making an asset that is special really get known and, 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 and be special. And it's, if there's a favorite hotel, it's probably that because it just meant so much to me as we were putting our team together and relaunching Trinity. What were some of the things you did in that hotel? There were little things like from appealing real estate taxes, but but you know, like all the F and B outlets were open all the time. So sort of working with management to say which ones should be open when, you know, bringing a sense of fun. This was like right as pickleball was was sort of like getting launched, right? Yeah. And we were there over Thanksgiving, and and we were 
setting up pickleball nets on the tennis courts. And, and unfortunately, at, at Kapalua, it can rain sideways for days at a time. <laughs> and so we convinced management to put pickleball nets up in the ballroom. And the next thing over the next few days, like you had a couple of hundred guests playing pickleball with a bar and live, not live, but you know, yeah. music going. And But it was really working with management. They had like owned and and ho hotel owned and third party owned condos that were part of the rental pool, working with those third party owners to incentivize them to to participate in the rental pool. And we ended up with 100% participation. We renovated the guest rooms, just repositioning it and marketing it like, you know, Kapalua might be viewed as the windy, rainy side of Maui, but hey, it's got some of the purest air in the world, like, because you've got that yep. confluence of trade winds and moisture, and it's spectacularly beautiful. But it it really sort of worked. I'm going to visit all those hotels, yeah. except the one that was knocked down, but <laughs> look forward to it. Hopefully we can do it together. Thanks Absolutely. for coming on the podcast. No, thank you. Really appreciate it. It's fun. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Thank you.